You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. I would invite you to turn to Psalm 51 this morning. And I just want to begin by reading the 51st Psalm. So Psalm 51 in your Bibles, Psalms right in the center of the Scriptures, and uh, Psalm 51, so familiar to so many people uh, for so many different reasons. Um, Psalm 51, and if you look at sort of the introduction um, that's given to us there, it puts it in um, a proper historical context. In other words, why was Psalm 51 written? And we'll talk a little bit more about that after I read Psalm 51, but if you look at it, it says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, so we know David wrote this psalm, but why did he write it? He, this was the occasion of the writing. When Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, maybe you don't know who David is, and maybe you don't know who Nathan is, and maybe you don't know who Bathsheba is, and maybe you don't know what happened. We're going to look at that this morning. But before we do, I want to look at the beginning at the end product of what happened. And I want to challenge you this morning to, as we think about um, this narrative, this historical narrative of what happened with Nathan and David and Bathsheba, I want you to think about where you might find yourself um, in the text this morning or how the text might be speaking um, to your heart and to your circumstances and to your situation. So uh, listen to what David says on the occasion of, of these things that happened historically. He says in verse 1, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgression, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. As we look at the text, we're going to say, first of all, this, that we need mercy. We need mercy. Secondly, he begins in, in verse 2, and so I want to go back and catch verse 2. Not only do we need mercy, but we are guilty. And look at verse 2. He says, wash me, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's very personal. He deals with his sin. Verses 3 to 6, he says, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Something is wrong, David is saying, deep, deep, deep inside of me that, that just modifying myself externally or learning some principles isn't going to change. There, there is this sin principle, this sin nature. I need to be judged by God. But then he says in verse 7 as it relates to the fact that he is guilty, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So uh, we need mercy. We are guilty. Thirdly, we need 
cleansing. And he lays out several different layers of cleansing beginning in verse number 7. Let's read verses 7 to 12. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create, me in a, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. We need cleansing. We need mercy. We are guilty. We need cleansing. Every one of us needs cleansing this morning. And David wanted that kind of cleansing that would occur in two ways. Number one, he wanted a cleansing that would cause him to feel clean when he was alone by himself. He wanted a cleansing that would shut up that little voice that's constantly screaming inside of us, you are worthless, you are a sinner, you are dirty, remember what you did, you can't escape what you did, what you did defines you. David wanted to wake up in the morning and, and, and really believe that he was who God said he was on the other side of forgiveness. But secondly, David wanted to be able to walk into the presence of a holy God and know that he was so forgiven that a holy God was not looking at him as though he was dirty. And that he would walk into the congregation of, of fellow sinners who had been forgiven and know that those people were identifying him not on the basis of, the, of, his, of his sin or what they knew about him, but on the basis of who he was in Christ. And so David said, I want this thorough cleansing. This thorough cleansing. And then finally... Then finally, we see in the text this morning, we need restoring. If you'll look at verse 13. He mentions restoration in verse 12, but look at verse 13. When I'm restored, what will I do? Then I will teach transgressors your ways. It's on the other side of uh, this, this deep experience and encounter with sin and coming to grips with it and not trying to hide it, not trying to sweep it under the rug, not trying to act like it never happened, but coming to grips with this sin and standing before God and saying, God, you have every right to judge me. You have every right to crush me. You have every right to pour your wrath out on me. I have failed miserably. I have sinned terribly. My heart is absolutely and completely corrupt. My heart is so messed up that you need to create a new heart within me. But, oh God, if you would do that, I am now going to walk out into the public arena and I'm going to proclaim to everyone your great work, your great forgiveness, your great mercy. I'm going to teach transgressors your way. I'm going to warn sinners to return to you and I'm going to do it on the basis of my own testimony. I'm not going to walk out there and act like I'm Mr. Clean and if you could only be as clean as me, you'd be okay. He says, verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. I can't help but think that maybe David is remembering those times when he set out with the sheep before all of this mess with him and Bathsheba and Nathan and Uriah. I can't help but think that he was remembering back when there was this really, really 
amazing relationship that he had with God, this intimacy that he had with God, this fellowship that he had with God, where he would look up in the skies and, and, and see the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show forth his handiwork, and he would grab his harp, and nobody's listening but the, the few sheep that he's managing, and he would sing to the top of his lungs. And nobody cared and nobody heard. And maybe the sheep, while they were eating or sleeping or whatever they did, would glance up with their eyes or maybe they were scared or shocked. But there was just him and God and this fellowship and this joy. And he says, O oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth and declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And David, coming through his sin and having a new heart, now has this spirit internal transformation. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. God will then be exalted as the centerpiece of his people, the focal point of his people. Now, uh, that's the, the psalm, but we need to ask ourselves, who was David? And David was the, the greatest king in the history of Israel. If you look at Israel's high point historically, that was when David was the king. Samuel was uh, the, the, the prophet priest, and Samuel uh, appointed Saul. The people wanted a king, and Saul uh, was king. And then Saul really messed up royally, and David ascends to the throne from nothing, from watching sheep to being the king. And then after David was Solomon, and after Solomon, the kingdom then divided. Israel essentially became like two separate nations with two separate kings. And it's been downhill from there, for the most part, historically, for Israel. So, so David was at the height of um, Israel's life. And there's some things that we could say about David. Who was David? David killed Goliath. David killed the lion. David, David did all sorts of great things that we can read about in his life. David escaped Saul and all of Saul's army. David was a great uh, leader. David was a great friend. We see the story of him and Jonathan and their friendship. David was uh, an amazing worshiper. He was a man after God's own heart. David was a great musician. We go through the Psalms and most of these Psalms were written by this, this great artist, David. David was a great dancer. He danced so feverishly one time that his own wife was embarrassed by it. David was the best, but if David had a glaring weakness, it was women. It was women. I know that none of us here would struggle with anything like that, right? I know that we're not bombarded with images and experiences and relationships but if you would just bear with me while maybe I talk to you, there's something completely unrelated to all of us, right? David had a problem with women. If David saw a woman he wanted, he just took her. And that's, that's what happened with Bathsheba. In fact, if you go to 2 Samuel 11, it's laid out beautifully. 
Second, uh, Second Samuel, you look at First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. These are just the historical narrative of what was happening. So you say we've got this brief description here at the beginning of Psalm 51, and Psalm 51 can take us back to the, the description of what was happening historically during that time period. And we look at Second Samuel 11, and there was a time period when kings should be going out to war, and David decided to stay home. Right? Because Israel is wiping everybody out. David doesn't even need to go out to war. A uh, brief lesson we can learn from that is success generally leads to excess. Right? And excess leads to self-indulgence. And self-indulgence leads to a mentality that says, you know what, I've earned it. I deserve it. In, in, in other words, it's, 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 it's from self-indulgence to this place of, of tremendous pride. And David had gotten there. David looked around at what he had accomplished. And, and David recognized that he had tremendous power over all of his people. David also recognized that he was so popular that if, that if he did some little thing wrong, that nobody could overpower him, nobody could defeat him, nobody could fire him, nobody could kick him out. He had completely forgotten because of all of his success about God who gave it to him. He had completely forgotten about where he came from. And so now we see David in 2 Samuel 11 walking out on his porch and looking over. Now, you've got to understand, David's got a 1,000 women on retainer. David can just say, hey, bring me, bring me six, 687, and I'd like to be with her tonight. But that wasn't enough for David. David looked out, and he saw Bathsheba. And I, I just believe that he knew Bathsheba because Bathsheba was married to a man named Uriah, and Uriah was one of David's mighty men. Dave, Uriah was in David's smallest circle, so he knew who Uriah was, and he knew who Bathsheba was. But in that moment, something inside of David said, I want her, and I'm going to have her, and nobody's going to stop me. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to do, I'm going to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and I'm really not concerned about a God in heaven who is over all things. That's what success kind of does to us. It intoxicates us. It makes us forget who we are and who God is. David brings her in, has his way. All of a sudden, unintended consequences. Didn't plan for this. This woman that he has this one night stand with is pregnant. David being a powerful man, David being able to figure everything out, David being able to move people around like pieces on a chessboard, David being a great strategist, developed a strategy and said, I created a mess. You know what? I'm a great leader. I can fix the mess. I can handle this. I can manage my sin. So what David does is David says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring Uriah home. I'm going to get Uriah drunk. Uriah's going to go sleep with his wife. Nobody's going to know about it. Uh, uh-oh, David. Everybody already knows about it because when David saw the woman, he inquired and said, who is this woman? And they said, is that not Uriah's wife? That's somebody saying, hold on, king, stop. Please don't. That's somebody else's wife. David didn't care. David didn't care. He brings Uriah home, gets him drunk, hopes that Uriah would be like David, right? Women are irresistible. Women were his problem. If you rise anything like me, and I'm the king, and I'm a man after God's, God's own heart, and I'm in control, your rise is probably going to fall right into this trap. I have to believe in some way. I don't know it, but Bathsheba had to in some way be complicit. Why couldn't she have confessed her sin to her husband? Why couldn't she have just said, hey, this is the problem? But no, I think she's playing along with David's plan so that David can cover it up. That didn't work. So David then sends Uriah out to, to war and sends a letter 
by the hand of Uriah to Joab, David is going to ultimately destroy this sin and any trace of it by sending Uriah into the heat of the battle and then ask everybody but Uriah to pull back. So here's Uriah taking a letter to Joab from David that essentially is his own suicide letter. It all happens as David planned. Joab's supposed to say just the right thing. David's supposed to hear the right thing. And everything is settled. David succeeded in his sin. And he came up with a strategy to deal with it and cover it. I wonder if any of us is like that. I wonder if any of us is like that. Maybe one or two of us. You know, we, we love our sin and we figure out a way to feed our sin and continue in our sin and cover our sin and we go through those cycles over and over and over and over and over again. There was a problem. I think a lot of people knew about it, but secondly, there was a guy named Nathan. And we come to, we come to 2 Samuel um, 12. I was just talking about 2 Samuel 11 chapter 11. Now we come to 2 Samuel 12. And Nathan the prophet comes to David. And Nathan the prophet says, David, or king, there was a man who had a lot of sheep, and he was wealthy, and there was a man who had this one little lamb that he loved, that he held, that he treated like his own child, that he fed. And the wealthy man that had all the sheep, this man came and said, I, I, I want to come and eat with you. And so this man said, I'm not giving up one of my sheep for this guy. So I'm going to go take this one lamb that this one poor man owns and loves so dearly. And I'm going to take it from him and I'm going to sacrifice it for this visitor. David said, that's, that's terrible. Nathan's telling him this story and and. So David's like, this is awful. This man needs to be punished. We need to deal with this. He needs to restore. And then Nathan, probably trembling and sweating, and his garments are probably drenched with sweat, knowing that any moment when he speaks up and tells the truth and says what he's supposed to say, he's, he's risking his own life, but he does it. He says, you are the man. You are the person that is guilty of this. David was thinking, I've gotten away with this. I know according to Psalm 32, he would wake up in the morning and go to bed in the evening and there was this rottenness in his bones as he would struggle with it. But David's guilt fell on him in that moment. And David writes Psalm 51. This is David's response to all of that saga, all of that sin, all of that mess, all of his strategizing, all of his covering. And here's what I would say to you and to me this morning. Every one of us needs to have a, a Psalm 51 experience. Every one of us needs to hear the words, you are the man, you are the woman, you are the the person. Every one of us needs to hear that. And every one of us needs everything that David needed from the Lord in this text as we look at it this morning. The first thing I want you to consider with me is this. We, we need mercy. Verses 1 and 2. Look at it if you will. Have mercy on me, 
O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. What is mercy? We, we say, have mercy when we are found guilty and we're about to be sentenced. Have mercy when we are out of excuses. Have mercy when we can no longer justify ourselves. By the way, can I tell you something that happens to me, and maybe this doesn't happen to you, but anytime anybody comes to me and tells me that I'm wrong, anytime anybody comes to me with a word of criticism, you know what happens in my mind? I don't say I'm guilty. I don't. I go through a whole list of things that justify me. Anytime my wife says I've done something wrong, I'm just like, what, what, are you, what is wrong with you? I'm not a drunk, right? I don't beat you. I don't cuss at you. So wh why, are you, why are you worried about this little thing? Why don't you just let it go, all of this, all of this justification that I can stack up? It, it gives me permission to say to my sin that my self-righteousness is better than the wrongs that I have committed. But David has come to the place, and, and I appreciate him in this. He didn't say, I'll have you to know I'm the king. I'll have you to know I'm a man after God's own heart. I'll have you to know I've written all of these songs. I'll have you to know I'm the best worshiper in Israel. I'll have you to know that I'm, I'm, I killed Goliath. Do you understand who I am? I'll have you to know that I outran Saul and nobody could catch me. He didn't do any of that. When we cry for mercy, we are out of excuses. There is no one to blame. We, we are exhausted from our self-righteousness and self-justification. The cry for mercy is a cry to say, go lenient, leniently on me. Go easy on me. Don't give me what I deserve. Don't treat me like I deserve to be treated. A cry for mercy is a plea to the holy, just God of the universe to say, don't be just with me. What is mercy? Mercy is pity. David is saying, have pity. A cry for mercy is an admission of guilt and a desire for God to pity us. It is acknowledging that we deserve judgment. It's a request for pity in place of judgment and justice. It is a cry for undeserved favor. Mercy is God's loving assistance to the pitiful. And by the way, if you and I are wrapped up, tangled up, being smothered by sin this morning, we are in a pitiful condition. Grace is giving you what you don't deserve. Mercy is withholding from us what we do deserve. For David to go from, this man is guilty, let's prosecute him, to have mercy on me. It's profound and it's rare. It is the rare experience of sudden brokenness that many of us shield ourselves from. The most powerful man in all of Israel stripped bare in an instant because he saw himself as someone who was pitiful and helpless before a holy God. And I would ask you this morning, have you ever been there? Have you ever been to the place where you see how sinful and broken you are and you're willing to cry out to God, have mercy? The question we need to ask 
in this moment, though, is this. How can a just God be merciful? And the text tells us a just God can be merciful because of his steadfast love, a love that doesn't vacillate, a love that doesn't change, a love that flows out of his character. The text says that. Have mercy. What kind of mercy is this? It's according to your steadfast love. It's according to your abundant mercy, this multitude of mercy, this mercy that is greater than our sin, this mercy that that just flows down when we cry out for it over us and over our sin. It is abundant mercy that is only possible because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. A just God can pour out mercy because that just God satisfied justice by killing his son for our sin. And when God killed his son for our sin, sin was judged. And now a merciful God is free to pour out that great mercy on those who are sinners. Essentially, and I don't think we do the math well, essentially the plea for mercy is the plea for God to find another sacrifice for our sin. God doesn't just say, okay, I'll just overlook it. No. When we say, God, have mercy, we're saying, God, would you please punish somebody else in my place for my sin? That's what it means. David is crying out to God to punish someone else for his sin. Perhaps he understood the Passover when the Passover lamb was killed and the blood was put on the doorpost, signifying that there had been a death as payment for sin on the part of of God's people so that the judgment of death would not fall on them because another was killed in its place pointing to Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ and His coming and His death and His burial and His payment for sin and His victory over sin. And the only way that any of us can have mercy is to fling ourselves on the steadfast love of God and experience His abundant mercy because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. What does mercy look like? He says, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my sin. Wash me completely from my sin. This washing, this washing, and he mentions it over and over again, is a ceremonial cleansing. It's a it's taking, and he mentions the hyssop, is dipping this plant into this blood and sprinkling the blood on someone who had a disease and they were healed of that disease. He's saying, wash me so that this disease of my sin can be gone completely. And so David cries out, have mercy. Secondly, David says, uh, I am guilty. Let me just back up one second. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall have mercy. Can I, can I just challenge you this morning um, to, to embrace the beauty of a culture of mercy? Can I just challenge you to do that? Could I, could I ask you, those of you that say you know Christ, those of you that have said have mercy, those of you that have mercy, those of you that take mercy, those of you that experience mercy, could I challenge you 
to, to embrace mercy and let us as a people put a high value on the mercy of God, not only in how we relate to Him, but in how we relate to each other. Could I ask you to do that? If you have experienced mercy, if you have received mercy, shouldn't we be dispensing mercy? Shouldn't we? Shouldn't, shouldn't me and my wife just be dispensing mercy back and forth? H have I ever offended her? I sure have. Have I ever hurt her? I sure have. Have I ever disappointed her? I sure have. Do I deserve her? Absolutely not. I stood in my kitchen last night. She said, what are you thinking? I said, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. I said, I am so thankful for you. She said, you're right, I don't believe you. <laughs> Can I ask you the next time you're tempted to be critical? It's so easy. Can I, can I tell you something? It's so easy to find something to criticize. There's a lot wrong. There's always something wrong. There's always a problem if you're looking for it. Can, can, can I ask you the next time that you are tempted? You know what criticism is? Criticism is merciless judgment. That's what it is. You know what gossip is? Gossip is merciless judgment. Could I ask you to remember the mercy that you've been given and be a dispenser of mercy? Could I ask you to apply that practically in how we relate to one another? And so people would walk into this community and say, what's so unique about this community? Oh, we're perfect. Oh, bless God, we're perfect. We're just a perfect people. We're squeaky clean. We do nothing wrong. We got all our ducks in a row. We got the right books in the bookstore. We're, we're doing expositional preaching. You know, we've got life groups and DNA. We're confessing sin. We're, we're doing all these. We, we got it all right. You want to see our list? No. We're broken. We're broken. And you know how I can have a relationship with my wife? If mercy is being dispensed from me and mercy is being dispensed to me. And you know how I can have a relationship with you? Not if, I'm, not if I have to perform perfectly. But if when I fall and when I'm broken, mercy pours out from you. And when you fall and when you're broken, mercy pours out from me. And then people can come together in the body of Christ. And they don't have to come in with masks on. They don't have to be posers. They don't have to be phonies. They don't have to let sin like cancer eat them up in the depth of their soul. Because they can't tell anybody. Because if they tell anybody, people are going to look at them like they are that. Like they are that. Could I just challenge you this morning? Let's be a culture of mercy. In the presence of mercy is the absence of judgment. Why? You just, you just, you just want to let people get away with their sin? No. I want to accept that sin has been paid for in Christ and Christ alone. If you are scared of somebody getting by with their sin. You are profoundly self-righteous and unjustifiably so. Ain't none of us that good. Ain't none of us that good. I'm not for making light of sin. I'm for making much of Christ. 
And I'm for going and living in his finished work and not trying to live in my impossible work. The second thing we see is that is David says, I, I'm, I'm guilty. And he owns it. He owns it. He, notice, notice, if you will, and I'll hasten, I'll hasten through the text. He says, for I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. And he says, against you, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. David's not saying that you shouldn't confess your sin to others. He's just saying, you know what, I can manipulate people, I can fool people, I can say the right words, but I can't fool you, God. And I can get away and I can smooth things over and, and in front of people, but not you, God. You see everything, and my sin ultimately is against you, but my sin certainly has been against Uriah. He had Uriah killed. He killed him. He murdered him. My sin certainly is against Bathsheba. He definitely took advantage of her. His, his sin was against God. David said, against you and you only have I sinned? He's basically saying, God, you are inescapable. I hid from them. I can't hide from you. I manipulated them. I can't manipulate you. I am the king. They can't judge me. You are God, and you have every right to judge me, and you would be just to kill me. And then David makes this statement that I think all of us would be wise to embrace. He says, behold, the word behold is a superlative. He's calling attention to it specifically as an exclamation Behold, <laughs> I was shapen in iniquity, the King James says. That's how I memorized it. And in sin did my mother conceive me. Some would be tempted to say, I'll tell you what, if Bathsheba hadn't been flaunting herself out there on, uh, in the bathtub, David would have never been tempted to do that. So it's all Bathsheba's fault. I'm sorry. You can go there if you want to. I will not. The sin does not originate from a glance over the balcony. The sin originates in the heart. That's why David is saying, Behold, I, I was born a sinner. Therefore, I'm not going to make excuses. Therefore, I'm not going to self-justify. Therefore, I'm not going to blame other people. Therefore, I'm not going to blame circumstances. If there's any question about whether or not I'm wrong, any question about whether or not I've sinned, the answer is yes. Fill in the blank. I was a sinner from the time I was born, he says. It's congenital sin. I'm a hopeless sinner by nature. Sinner is who I am. Sinner is what I do. I am guilty. And David said, I am so guilty it is deafening. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceived me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward part. God delights in our awareness of our sin, our guilt, our honest confession. David hid his sin. David lied about his sin. David pushed it deeper and deeper into the recesses of his soul. And he's saying, no, God delights in our being honest and confessing. Much like 1 John 1, 7 to 9. The way out of sin is not behavior modification. It's heart transformation. And here's what David is saying. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin that my mother conceived me and I have a problem that is at the heart of who I am and I can't change it myself. I am incapable of doing that for myself. 
Thirdly, not only does David say we are guilty, not only does David say we need mercy, but David says we need cleansing. And if you look at verse 7, he says, Purge me with hyssop. Again, that blood that is sprinkled on someone who has already been healed. David said, Heal me on the inside and let it change how I live on the outside. Lord, don't let me be identified by my sin. Let me be identified by your, your cleansing and your healing. If you will wash me, I will be whiter than snow. Only Christ can do that. If you will wash me, I will hear joy and gladness. If you will wash me, those bones that, that creaked and popped and hurt, What's he talking about the bones? That's the deepest recesses of his being. He couldn't get away from it. He couldn't get away from his sin. It was always with him. There was a reminder every second and every movement that he made that he was a sinner. And he's saying, now, Lord, if you will cleanse me, if you will purge me, if you will wash me, then, then I can hear joy and gladness. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. You ever look at somebody and they look at you like they know you've done something wrong? He's saying, Lord, don't look at me like you know I've done something wrong. Would you look at me like everything's okay with me and you? Would you look at me like my sin doesn't exist anymore? Would you let us have that kind of fellowship? Would you let us have that kind of relationship? Would you look at me like that? Don't hide your face from me, Lord. Don't, don't when I walk in, don't, don't. You know, I've told y'all before, my, uh, when I was in high school, a girl broke up with me. And I had to be in every class every day my senior year in high school. And I did not look at her or speak to her for nine months. I had, now, it didn't bother her. <laughs> she didn't care. But man, there was this negative energy and this anger because I had been offended. I had been sinned against. I had been done wrong. How dare you do that to me? He's saying to a holy God, God, who would be just in hiding his face, God, if you would cleanse me, I would be able to walk into your presence and felt like I belong there. Don't hide your face from me. And then he comes to verse 10, and, and some have said that verse 10 is the, is the center of of the psalm. And um, I just want to uh, say something about verse 10. Notice what he says in verse 10. He says, Create in me a clean heart. The, the problem is the heart. The problem is there's something wrong with our heart. The word create in Psalm 51 is the same word for create in Genesis 1, where God create, created out of nothing. He's not saying renovate. He's not saying um, take what's there and, and make it better. He's not saying improve. He's saying my heart is bad and I need a new heart. The, my heart is the heart of the problem. If you will create in me a new heart, then I can have a right spirit renewed within me and then I will not be cast away from your presence and your Holy Spirit will not be taken from me and I will have restored to me the joy of your salvation. It'll change everything about me. If you change my heart, you change my spirit. If you change my heart, you change my attitude. You change my desires if you change my heart. Listen, listen to what Paul Tripp said, and I, I read it in light of all of the controversy about plagiarizing. Uh, God help the man who's never been guilty of saying something that somebody else 
said. It's impossible to stand up week after week and not say something that somebody else has said. But anyway, um, folks can have those conversations. I'm not interested in them. Um, Listen to what Paul Tripp said. There is simply no doubt about it. Verse 10 is the epicenter of Psalm 51. In the summary, the definition, the description of David's true need. Verse 10 proves that David gets it. It demonstrates that David understands how he's gotten himself into such a mess. It makes it clear that David knows what spiritual warfare is all about. It tells you that David has given up on the personal change agendas that focus on changes of situation, location, and relationship. It tells you that David knows that he needs something greater than corrected theology and pragmatically effective principles. When David says, create in me a clean heart, O God, he's admitting the one thing we don't want to admit. He's confessing to the depth of his moral dilemma. He's looking at life God's way. He's saying, I'm facing something that I can't free myself from. I'm dealing with something that I can't solve. I'm in the middle of something that I don't have the independent power to alleviate. Here's the confession. Here's the plea. God, my problem is that I, I have a fundamentally unclean heart. I bring this uncleanness to every situation, location, and relationship of my daily life. In some way, it influences all of my thoughts, desires, choices, words, and actions. Lord, I want to be clean because now I can see clearly the legacy of my uncleanness. And I'm, I'm not unable to make my heart clean. I'm asking you to do what I can't do for myself. I'm asking you to create... In my heart, what isn't there. Can I tell you what we've historically done at church? We've historically just beaten the snot out of people for their sin. And then told them just to do better. Just do better. Just try harder. If I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of you would say that worked? How many of you who would say, how many of us would, who, who would say, I've struggled with lust like David? Just give me some principles. Just give me a book to read. Just try harder. Nobody can say it works. Somebody stands up and says, this worked for me. And then we say, well, it must work, but it's not working for me. But I can't act like it doesn't work, so I've got to come to church and act like it works. And then we end up coming into a room full of <laughs> liars, right, who are acting like something works that doesn't work because they're trying behavior modification, and we're not coming to God with the heart that's broken and messed up and sinful and saying, God, would you create in me a new heart? Because the problem is at the very core of my being. The, the operating system is bad. I need, I need to completely be transformed. I need something new that I can't give myself only inside of my being. I'm asking you to create in my heart what isn't there. Fundamental moral purity, a moral goodness of heart that will then shape all of my actions and reactions to life.
David needs forgiveness, but he's saying that he fundamentally, and I'm continuing with Paul Tripp, he needs something more. His prayer for a clean heart is a prayer for deliverance from the moral pull and the vulnerability that's the functional danger of the unclean heart. Create in me a clean heart. David is saying, I am, I can find my notes, I am guilty and the only hope in my guilt is a new heart. Fourthly and finally, not only do we need cleansing and there's, there's more that we could, could dig into, but we, we need restoring. We need restoring. And, and three very simple things about rest, restoration. Um, in restoration, number one, we need to be truthful about our struggle. We need to be truthful about our struggle. And that's what David's saying. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. We need to be truthful about our struggle. And when we are truthful about our struggle, then sinners who are struggling with the same struggle that we are struggling with will see the difference in our life, our, our new heart that has been created in us, a new spirit, a new new gladness, a new joy. Secondly, we need restoration and we experience restoration when mercy leads to worship. And that's what he's saying. Lord, I'm going to open up my heart. And here's, here's, what we, here's what we do in worship. Worship is not about the, the impressiveness of our sacrifice. Worship is about, and this is said over and over in Scripture, a broken and a contrite heart. A spirit of humility that says, I'm good because I perform well? No. That says, I'm good because I'm self-righteous and all the rest of you, or I do great things? No. If there's any goodness in me, it is Christ and Christ alone. And thirdly, um, we know that we are restored. And David's he's seeing the big picture. He says, do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then we, you will delight in right sacrifices. David sees the people of God gathered around in the presence of God, uh, enjoying Him and worshiping Him. And that is when there is restoration. At the center of all that is the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. And we are worshiping Him because our rest and our hope is in what He has done and not in our ability not to look over the wall and not to be tempted with lust and not to strategize and scheme and plan so that we can feed the appetite of our sin. But us seeing the sinfulness that's in our heart and crying out to God, God, would you give me a new heart? God's concern, and this is where we have failed our people as the church, God's concern is not rules to prevent you from sinning. You say, God's not concerned about sin. Certainly God's concerned about sin. Please don't read into what I'm saying. Please have mercy on me. Amen. Just, would you just have a little mercy for a minute? You know, you say something and folks are like, oh, what do you mean by that? You know? You heretic. <laughs> okay, okay. 
God's concern is not rules to prevent you from sinning, but a relationship with Christ that is better than sin. A relationship with Christ that is better than sin. And, and, and I would say, just, just in, in closing this morning, uh, do you feel the weight of your sin? Have you ever cried out to God in desperation for mercy? Have you seen the source of your sin as your own heart? As you look at the text, what do confession and cleansing look like in your life and in your relationships? I would invite you this morning to Jesus Christ. I would invite you into a relationship with Him. I would invite you this morning to run to this mercy covering. Mercy, mercy flows. Mercy flows. There is steadfast love. There is the blotting out of sin. There is the transformation of our heart. There is the entrance into a new community. I would invite you this morning into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And David has beautifully described it for us here in Psalm 51. Would you come to Christ in Christ?